0: Hello everyone, Rad Bill and Money Mike here. Up until now, a majority of our library has been focused on myth-busting the self-made success stories of the very rich, and we'll get back to that. But in this episode, we're going to be interviewing a workplace injury attorney to help you get a better idea of what you should do in the immediate aftermath of an injury at work. We're going to touch on what to do if you're the person who got hurt, even if you're undocumented what to do if you are a bystander who witnesses someone else getting hurt at work, if you are a fellow employee who caused a coworker to get hurt at work. And we're going to touch on what companies will do to avoid issuing a payout to an injured employee. This is going to get dense, just so you know, but having a high level understanding about what to do in these instances will help you protect yourself and It'll help you be an agent of positive change for those who make the world go round. Working folks.
1: And with that, I think we are ready to introduce our special guest, Jordan Howell. He is a workplace injury lawyer who represents injured workers in Pennsylvania and New Jersey. We will include a directory of workplace injury lawyers in our sources who will know the nuances for each state. However, if you are in Pennsylvania or New Jersey, Jordan should be your first call. Jordan, thanks again for joining us.
2: Good afternoon, fellas. I'm happy to be on. Let me start by saying...
0: Yeah, Jordan, thank you again so much for being on. We appreciate it. We can jump right in here. So let's say for the sake of conversation that I fall off a ladder at work and break my arm. What is the immediate aftermath typically for a worker in the U.S.? The first and most important
2: thing if you get hurt on a
0: job site is your health.
2: Everything legal-wise and the bills and your pay and all that stuff, that can be taken care of later, um, but you need to take care of yourself. So what I always tell clients uh, or people that call and want to know what their rights are, you know, I tell them to go to the doctor. That, that's, that's the first and most important thing. Go to the doctor, you know, listen to the doctor's orders, do what they tell you, um, take care of your health. And when the time comes, when you get out of the hospital or when you get to your house after you've rested up a little bit, um, then you call the lawyer. Gotcha. To that point, you know, I think it's important to make sure that um, you're calling a lawyer that knows what they're doing. You know, you go on to Amazon or, you know, you go out to buy something, you read reviews, you go on to Yelp. You're making, you're making a forty-dollar purchase, and at least I know I do. I was buying headphones the other day, and I probably read like fifty different reviews. Um, the same, same thing applies when you're you're hiring a lawyer. I mean, that person um, is going to be a very important person in your life for a good amount of time, and you want to make sure you have someone that has your best interests um, in mind. So, you know, one of the first things, as I mentioned, is your health. The second is is find a good lawyer who's going to take care of
0: you. So. I worked at Home Depot many moons ago. We were stacking gravel onto a rolling dolly in the front parking lot area. Uh, It was myself and one of the vendors, I believe. He didn't work immediately for Home Depot, but we piled up the gravel onto this dolly, and it was heavy enough to where it took two of us to move it. And I was at the front. The other guy was pushing. He didn't listen to my... Uh, my countdown, which maybe I didn't even need to do. I'm not an athletic person. A countdown. <laughs> um, he rolled it over my foot. Mm. So obviously, I screamed, which is what happens when someone very suddenly puts a ton of weight on your foot. And immediately, or within, I would say, seconds, the manager of that department grabs me, sweeps me to a back room, and has me sign a bunch of paperwork. How do you feel? Everything else. He's bombarding me with questions. He's got all these big documents. It's effectively, I understood it. They were waivers or they were designed to um, alleviate any responsibility from the company for my injury. And in this case, I was fortunate in that I wasn't really that badly hurt. But I've heard this story all over the US and I've stories like this Canada, people burning their arm getting burned in a cafe and they get the exact same thing in that process, are, are there moments in there where people need to be taking extra steps to protect their interest? Yeah. The first thing
2: that you think about when you're talking about a company like Home Depot or any of these other um, large enterprises, I mean, these are, are sophisticated companies. They know what they're doing. Unfortunately, they've probably had thousands of injuries throughout their business and so they know what they need to do to protect themselves. Um, and that's why I appreciate what you guys are doing, your mission in this podcast, because um, the workers need to protect themselves. Right. You know, the first step is, is make sure you fill out an incident report. And, you know, if you, if you need to go to the hospital or you need treatment, obviously, as I mentioned before, that's, that's number one. But to the extent that you feel like you don't need to run off to the emergency room, um, you have to report the injury because okay. um, if there's no report, Things can sometimes take a turn for the worse later on. I have represented dozens of injured workers who felt that they suffered a relatively minor injury. Um, you know, I represent iron workers and guys like that. These are like tough guys who have been out on job sites their, their whole lives. <laughs> a minor injury for them is like, I
0: cut off my hand, but I'm going to walk it off. <laughs> yeah, no, you're, you're 100% right. And, and
2: someone will say, you know, a supervisor will come and they'll say, are you OK? And These are tough guys. They're like, Yeah, I'm fine. Everything's OK. Yeah. And, you know, that, that can be taken to mean a lot of different things. What I've seen happen in a lot of cases is, is someone gets hurt and you know they they pull something and they're like, ah, oh, it's a little sore, but I'll be fine. Let me just take it lightly the rest of the afternoon. Sure. They go home and maybe they spend the weekend at home, and uh, Monday or Tuesday they come in and they realize they can't actually lift anything. Or maybe over the weekend that sprain and that strain turned into a sharp shooting pain. And that's why it's so important to report it, even if it's minor. If it turns out to be minor and it's nothing a few days later, well, then you're lucky. You know, that's the most important thing is your health. So just make sure you report it. In terms of what you mentioned about, you know, signing paperwork, you hate to see it. Because you know these employers, they know exactly what they're doing. The advice I would give to everyone and anyone is to not sign anything. Got it. They can't make you sign if they ask you to sign something. And if you're going to ignore, which I think is pretty consistent advice across the board, to not sign anything, if you're going to ignore that, just make sure you read every document they put in front of you. Number one rule is don't sign. But if you do, make sure at least you read it and you know what you are signing. Because you you never know what's going to happen. I mean, a lot of people that get hurt, the employers initially will try to take care of the workers to some extent. Because they have to keep morale up at the company. What I've seen happen is the employer will put a worker onto light duty because of some sort of injury. And, you know, that can play out in a lot of different ways. Good companies will take care Mm -hmm. of that worker until they're able to return to full strength and, and get back to the job they were hired to do. But, you know, there are some shadier companies out there that will put you on light duty and then. After a week of watching you shred paper in the office, they will quickly realize that uh, they are losing money and all of a sudden, you know, you might find yourself quote unquote laid off because there's not enough work. Sure. You know, that's why it's so important to, you know, make sure you know what you're signing if you're going to do it. Just really don't sign
0: anything, you know, show it to a lawyer. Gotcha. There's one question that I remember that I wanted to ask. You mentioned a scenario where someone gets hurt at work, the big tough steel worker guy and goes, I'm fine, I'll walk it off. Does the act of saying I'm fine hurt that person's case at all? And does going home that day without filling out an incident report hurt that person's case? You know, every case is different, Mm -hmm. um, but I think ultimately
2: it's not a great fact, but it wouldn't be fatal to any case. You know, every, every injury develops differently. Um, if you do end up going home and things get worse later, that's when it's important to go get treatment. And sure. just because you say you're okay now, it wouldn't bar you from potentially bringing either a workers' compensation case or speaking to a, a third party lawyer who you know will go after other companies. You know, there's nothing wrong with saying I'm okay if that's how you're feeling. I mean, you know, that, that's some that's a natural reaction. I mean, when you get hurt, your first your first thought is not um, let me you know p- prepare my my legal case that may or may not come three <laughs> years from now. Yeah. You know, your first thought is. Is, is, oh my God, am I okay? Uh, You know, is my toe still connected to my foot? Mm -hmm. So it's it's just important that, you know, if things do get worse, that you document it. You know, when you come back on Monday, make sure you let your employer know. If things get worse, as I mentioned, you know, go see a doctor
1: and, and get a note and, you know, start treatment. You mentioned filing an incident report. Where would something like that be filed and who with? That's a really good question. So,
2: you know, most employers, well, I shouldn't say most employers, I'll say a lot of employers, especially bigger companies have paperwork that basically documents when an accident or an injury occurs. OSHA, the Occupational Safety Health Administration, they require uh, bigger employers. I think it's something like 50 or 100 employees. They have to keep logs of all their injuries. And if they don't keep the logs, they can get pretty large and hefty fines from OSHA. The point being nearly every company that I've seen at least has some sort of incident reporting form, whether it's writing it down on a piece of paper or they have blank type forms. It's just reporting it one way, even if it's just sending an email to your boss documenting what happened or a text message. Getting it and writing one way or another is is really a, a good starting point to make sure you protect yourself because if things take a turn for the worse, down the line, Mm -hmm. um, you want some documentation verifying that that injury occurred on that day. I have a woman right now that I'm representing who uh, she was actually a building inspector out on a construction project in Ocean County, New Jersey. And there was a hazard in a stairwell and she ended up walking into a beam Mm. that was blocking the walkway. And she hit her head on the beam and she tried to be a trooper about it. And she said, I'm okay, I'm okay. And as uh, the days went on, things took a turn for the worse, and she ended up going to the hospital. And then all of a sudden, they realized she had herniated some discs and Ooh. aggravated some, some prior injuries. And the guy that actually saw the injury he ended up passing away, completely unrelated. So oh the only other witness to her case ends up dying. Hmm. And she didn't report it right away. And you know, she still has a case, but it's, it's it definitely decreases the value of the case because it makes it less likely at the end of the day that she's gonna win if the case were to go to trial. So that's, you know, that's just, uh, it's really important to get some documentation very early.
1: Gotcha, gotcha. So we've outlined a couple potential errors that an injured worker might make throughout our conversation thus far, but just to keep it concise and kind of give people a list of don'ts, what are some common missteps that injured workers make That you've seen that will end up hindering their case down the road
2: that's an interesting question so one of the things that you'll see is when injured workers are off the employers oftentimes get a little unhappy about paying for that worker to as they see it sit at home while everyone else is you know working and and trying to make that company money so sometimes what you'll see is those employers decide that it is much cheaper to send an investigator out to the injured worker's house mm. uh, with a camera and start filming, okay. right? If if you only have to pay an investigator, you know, say a hundred dollars an hour to watch a guy for a couple days, versus potentially weeks, months, or years of full wages, they might try to get you on camera outside doing something that suggests that you're actually capable of coming to work. One of the things that I always recommend to people is if you're truly hurt and you're not able to get back to work, don't go outside and and try to be a hero and do things that might be interpreted to mean that you're capable of working because these employers, and it's really the insurance companies, they really do send people out, they really do use cameras, and they really will record you and then use that video to say that you can come back to work. Wow,
0: wow. That is crazy. So effectively, if you're hurt at work, don't be a hero afterwards. If it's causing you pain, listen to your body. Are there other missteps that you often see? That one's mind blowing.
2: Um, in terms of missteps, I think every case is different. But you know, maybe it's something like not getting treatment trying to be a hero and just saying, you know, I'm going to treat this at home. Another one might be not uh, getting a lawyer that knows what they're doing. I mean, some of these law firms out here, I hate to say it, but some of them out here are, are volume based and they just want to churn these cases out. The reality is, once you do get hurt, you're a liability to the company. You are not an asset. And so you need someone to protect your rights. And if you hire an attorney that is more of a volume practice, you know, I don't want to speak against everyone, but a lot of these places, they may not care very much about the ultimate outcome or the net to you. They are more concerned with just getting the case quickly resolved and moving on to the next one. So, you know, do your research, get personal recommendations, you know, do your do your homework.
1: Got it. You actually made a point about the insurance company sending out investigators. It sounds like even if the employer is doing all the right things, oftentimes it's a confrontation between the employee and the employer's insurance company. Is that kind of a good description of how these things usually play out?
2: I think you hit the nail on the head there with one minor correction, and that is that um if an employee is out uh, on workers' compensation, like disability, where workers' compensation is paying some of their benefits, some of that, I'm not sure the exact portion, but some of that payment is still paid by the employer. So it's, you know, it's kind of, it's, it's really a double whammy against the employee because they have a an insurance company that doesn't want to pay you, and there's an employer that doesn't want to pay you. And these are two sophisticated users going after an individual worker, and that is why it's so important to get someone on your side who's going to fight for you. In terms of the employer and the insurance company and how they work, it's it's kind of interesting because um, I can't speak for the entire country, but in a lot of states, definitely in Pennsylvania, when you first get hurt, you have to go see the workers' compensation doctor. You can't necessarily go see your own PCP, or, you know, you can't go to, like, University of Pennsylvania Hospital where they have, you know, great doctors. Oh. Um, these employers have contracts with medical practices where their entire practice is a contract with employers. And it's really interesting because if you go on to these, like, medical there – it'll be a company like compdoctor.com or something. I made that up. But um, oh you can God. find them if you just search on Google – and these doctors actually advertise on their websites yeah. that they return injured workers back to work faster than, you know, like 20% faster than all of the other companies. So you're telling me that either these doctors have some sort of medical uh. knowledge, some like re- new uh. um, way of treating workers that gets everyone healthy quicker or they're just sending injured workers back to work faster, really? right? Wow. So Um, You know, we we know what's happening there. And that's, you know, that's kind of the the deal. And, and that's what happens with these insurance companies, because ultimately, they're the ones footing the bill, and they want to get the injured worker back to work faster.
0: Do you do you ever guide your clients through the process of dealing with these doctors? I mean, beyond just be honest with them?
2: Yeah. So twofold. In Pennsylvania, at least, I think it's something like 90 days off the top of my head. They have to treat for the first 90 days with the comp doctor, and then they can go out and find their own doctors. I know every state is different on that, so it's important to find a lawyer who knows what they're talking about in your state where you're hurt. What I tell my clients is just, you know, tell your doctor everything. Going back to some of these tough guys who, you know, who do everything, I'm like, if you're having headaches, you need to tell them that because you don't know if something later will be pertinent to your headaches. You can't go in there and just say, ah, I've got this, you know, a little soreness in my ankle and then leave out the fact that you never had knee pain before. I tell them to tell the doctor everything. They're taking notes on what your complaints are. And so if you are not telling that doctor everything, you better believe that when the employer or the insurance company or of. a defendant in a lawsuit. They're going to subpoena your medical records. And if you're not making the complaints, then they're going to argue that you made it up later. So I, I tell them to make sure that you tell the doctor everything, you know, be forthcoming about the issues that you're having. If they make recommendations to either see a specialist or to follow up, Make sure you're doing what the doctor tells you, because you don't want to find your claim cut short because you weren't following doctor's orders, and you know potentially make your own situation worse. I mean, the reality is, if a doctor's telling you to do something, you should probably follow it. That would be
0: my first, <laughs> yeah. uh, my first thought. So, what I'm getting from you, Jordan, is that we should listen to doctors. Yeah, that, that's that's pretty good advice. <laughs> to- Thank you for coming on the show. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry. Joke's over. Um, Okay, so what tactics do employers rely on most often to undermine an injured worker's claims?
2: It's, It's a shame to say, but what I see over and over and over again is the employers blaming the workers. They hate to see it. Because the employers are in the best position to make sure that their job sites, whether it's a facility, whether it's a construction project, whatever it may be, they're in the best position to make sure that the workers are safe. And it's really a shame when they try to blame an injury on the workers, especially when OSHA requires the employers to make sure that they have safe job sites, to make sure that the employees are doing their job safely, wearing the appropriate personal protective equipment. These are all requirements. They are not recommended suggestions. They are federal regulations requiring this. So seeing employers blame the workers is the first thing that they always do is they want to blame the worker and say it's their fault. Gotcha. Some other things that I've seen uh, in one case in particular, a gentleman was in a coma for a month following the accident. He had actually gotten hurt on his first day on the job. He got run over by a bobcat skid steer. Jesus. Oh what the God. employer did was he... Backdated some tax documents to try to make sure he got uh, the worker on the books so that employer could protect himself through workers' comp immunity. Wow. Uh, Another thing that you'll see is the employers will show off these fancy safety manuals and these training documents that they have, but a lot of times those fancy safety manuals and training documents have never actually been provided to the workers. Mm. I've seen in so many cases, uh, one in particular, was a, it's, it was an explosion at a gas station in ben Salem, Pennsylvania. Wow. A fuel delivery company um, made a number of huge errors that resulted in an explosion at a gas station. And, you know, I was deposing their safety manager and they had produced in Discovery this 400-page safety manual that had all these really great safety protocols, these great trainings that they said they were giving their workers. And, you know, I, I asked, I said, how come there's no document from the workers or from any of your uh, drivers indicating that they received this? There's no signature. And you can't make this up. The guy literally said, oh, well, we've never actually given it to them. <laughs> and, you know, so I said, well, well why, why do you have it? If you're yeah. not going to give it to the workers. And, and he <laughs> said, well, he, he said, our insurance company requires us to have it. Oh. And so what I've come to learn is these companies, when they are negotiating their commercial policies, they get reductions for having things like safety manuals and trainings, because in theory, it makes the job site safer. But that's all it is to them. You know, it's a it's a way to get a discount on their insurance and they don't actually always
0: give it to the workers. Interesting. Is that relatively standard in the states in which you operate, where if someone gets injured, they can assume that they should have seen a safety manual or safety guidance? I think it depends on the type of job and the type of employer.
2: Sure. If you're out on a construction site dealing with big pieces of heavy machinery and there are different contractors around you. Then the answer is unequivocally yes. Gotcha. Job sites have what's called JHAs, job hazard analyses, <laughs> and the employers are supposed to meet with the laborers prior to work that day identify common or typical hazards and then talk about ways to avoid those hazards. But that's more of what you're going to see in bigger construction projects might be like a construction of a, you know, a skyscraper or some sort of building. Those are bigger companies, more sophisticated companies that have that. But you have employers out here that are, you know, mom and pop companies. I don't think that those companies necessarily are going to have those fancy 400-page manuals. But you would hope that they are considering safety when they're assigning their workers to do things, depending on the type of job it is. If they're exposed to hazards, then yes, they should have training. They should have some idea of the hazards of the work that they're doing. And the more dangerous the work there is, the more training that that uh, worker ultimately should require. Sitting in my office here is, fortunately for me, not very dangerous. So my employer does not have a company-wide site safety manual.
0: Yeah, that's true. And as a podcaster sitting in this closet off of a bathroom, I actually don't have a safety manual either. So not everyone's going to have one. It's a good note. Can you hear the toilets as they flush? Fortunately, they aren't flushing right now. But if one were to flush, you could very clearly hear it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) This is super interesting. So as you've been handling these cases, have employers changed the way that they're approaching these cases?
2: One of the biggest changes in the way employers have handled cases that I've seen was during COVID. Obviously the world turned upside down and everyone changed pretty much everything they were doing, but it was the first time I had seen employers and really insurance companies pump the brakes Mm -hmm. on litigation as much as possible.
1: Interesting.
2: And ultimately, you know, what I attribute that to is they realized that there were no trials happening. And so if there are no trials happening, they don't have to pay out. So if these insurance companies have millions of dollars, they're making more money on the interest from their money sitting as opposed to paying out. What you learn is these insurance companies and the employers, they don't actually care about the health and safety, generally speaking. I mean, obviously there are great employers out there. I don't want to overgeneralize, but the insurance companies, especially, they don't care about the injured workers. They don't pay you because you're hurt. They don't pay you because they feel bad for you that you got hurt. They don't pay you because you had a bad injury. They pay you because they want to lower their own risk. Yeah and risk on their end is trial. Okay. They don't want a jury of your peers deciding how much money the injured worker should get to make up for the fact that they can't any longer work and pay their bills at home. They wanna control that. Yeah. And so during COVID, when courtrooms were shut down, they quickly realized that there were no trials. What you would see is the defense lawyers and the insurance companies would not agree to, for example, Zoom depositions. Hmm. You know, I was happy to take a deposition on Zoom. And I would say to the employers, insurance companies, you should be happy too. Your worker can stay in his office. He doesn't have to travel to mine. He doesn't have right. to deal with coming into Center City, Philadelphia, and all the traffic that comes with that and the parking and this and that and having to you know buy lunch, whatever it may be. You can sit in your office. You're not right in front of me, so it's less stressful. You're actually in your own space. It's almost like home field advantage. Yeah. And I'll just take the deposition on Zoom. And Zoom depositions have become commonplace. But during COVID, they, you know, some of the defense lawyers and the insurance companies were not agreeing to them. And so the cases were just sitting. And ultimately, what, that, what ended up happening is you know, the workers are not settling their cases or they're not going to trial. The workers hurt and he can't return to work then he's not getting the financing that he needs to take care of his family. And so what I've seen really during COVID was uh, them pump the brakes on everything, which slowed everything down. And Mm. I I wasn't in the master room where they were concocting this plan, but I I (laughs) suspect it was related to them just not
1: wanting to pay. That's really interesting that you say that because I used to work in the wealth management space. And there were a couple of instances where we were helping a injured worker manage a payout from one of these cases. And my uncle also had a similar case. And what I found in my very limited experience was that I felt like the insurance companies, to your earlier point, were using time to their advantage. What they were doing is they were delaying and delaying and delaying and just you know putting up as many walls of red tape as they could to try to starve the worker out. The worker can't go to work because they're injured. Whatever they're getting a month isn't paying the bills. So the longer that they can starve the worker, the more likely the worker is to accept a lower settlement just so they can get something, put this behind them and and pay their debts off. Is that a tactic that you see?
2: Absolutely, and that's something that insurance companies will do. I mean, they'll say that without saying it. They will give you an initial offer to settle the case, that is pennies on the dollar and you know some of the high volume lawyers that maybe don't have the injured workers interests at heart might suggest to the injured worker that they take it and i think that injured worker will feel a lot of pressure to accept that because they have bills to pay they have mouths to feed and so that is something that insurance companies do the only suggestion i can i can give there is you know if you have a lawyer that is going to fight for you and you trust them trust their advice sometimes you know your lawyer might know it's a good or a bad case they might be able to tell you whether it is worth entertaining that offer early on. But almost certainly, yes, early on, they will make very light settlement offers. And I generally tell my clients not to accept them because if they are offering that money, unless there's some really horrible fact in the case, usually that offer goes up pretty substantially. Interesting.
0: So Money Mike mentioned the weaponization of time by insurance companies. And Jordan, listening to you talk about insurance companies and employers being resistant to going to trial, I'm assuming those two accompany each other all the time where it takes longer to get to trial or their resistance delays any actual trial. Is there anything that the injured employee can say or do to hasten that?
2: Yeah, this goes back to one of the earlier things we talked about in terms of you know documenting your injury and, and building a strong case. Another thing that uh, we didn't talk about but is right along those lines is taking good photographs Hmm. because when you get hurt, if the case ultimately is going to end up at trial, generally speaking, um, at least in Pennsylvania, and New Jersey, and probably a majority of the country, you're not going to trial for anywhere from a year to three or four years. I have some cases that I've been working very diligently on that happened in 2018. Oh, wow. And so... If you're not taking photographs, um, for example, maybe of the accident location or of, you know, some of your injuries right when it happened, as they heal, you don't necessarily have the evidence to make your case strong. As I mentioned before, you want the insurance company to feel the risk, which is, you know, a jury issuing a large award. And the more risk that they feel, the more likely it is that they're going to offer you a settlement and a settlement takes the, the risk away from both the worker and the insurance company, and that happens before trial. And ultimately, the goal is to make sure that that injured worker is taken care of, and if you have to wait to go to trial, then that delays for potentially many, many years because the courts are backed up. I mean, they were backed up before COVID, and then it might've been two years before a trial happened. So for example, right now, we're working out from under all of the cases that were delayed during COVID, and so we're still seeing delays because we're dealing with cases that should have went to trial two years ago. They're going to trial now. And so the cases that should be going to trial now are getting pushed back. So ultimately, you know, taking photographs, documenting your injuries, things like this, put your case in a better position. And the insurance companies want to get rid of the better cases, meaning better for the worker. And they're more likely to want to go to trial in the weaker cases because they think they can win. And so ultimately, if you have a good case, then they're more likely to pay you. If you have a tougher, a harder case, you don't have good photographs, you don't have good proof of your injury, you didn't report it, they see that as something they can win, and they're going to want to take it to trial. And so if you have to wait for your trial day to get your day in court, it
0: can be years. So you mentioned getting good photographs at the scene of the accident. I'm I'm assuming you'd also want this to be soon after the occurrence of the accident. You don't want to be documenting everything while you're bleeding out for sure. but That's
2: good advice. Um, well, you heard it here. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't, did you go to law school?
0: <laughs> Let's say a fellow employee gets hurt. This is thinking about the pictures, everything else. What can a witness employee do to help a fellow employee in the immediate aftermath of an injury beyond medical in- intervention, you know, if they're CPR certified, whatever else, just to help them make things easier for them, the injured employee, and for you, their attorney?
2: Yeah, that's a great question because I, I love when this happens. And this goes right into taking those photographs of, you know, whatever it was that caused the mm-hmm. accident. In the case of a serious injury, the injured worker is not thinking about, you know, getting photographs. They're they're off. And they're not you wouldn't want them to go back to the scene while they're hurt. And then the employer's like, what are you doing here? And you're like, oh I'm gonna take a few photos. <laughs> Don't mind me. They're not gonna let you do that. So having a, a coworker or if you are the coworker, taking those photographs, just documenting them, saving them, really does a ton of benefit for the injured worker. What I often ask some of my clients shortly after an accident is, do you have a good friend that works there that would be willing to either talk to us off the record or would be willing to talk to you and then relay that information to us? or who can actually go in and, and take some photographs while they're back at the job site. For example, if there's an unsafe piece of equipment. In a lot of my cases, what I've seen is in like factories, employers might alter machines, like remove safety guards, whatever it may be, and so when a worker tells me they're hurt by some obscure like window making machine, I'm like, I, I don't know what to tell you. I don't know to t- if I can tell you, you have a good case because I've never seen a window making mm-hmm. machine. I don't even know what that is. Right. So what I'll say to them is, do you have someone you trust there that can snap a couple photos for you and, and get those to us? What I've often found is when those photos are taken, they get back to me. I'll hire you know, an expert who does know what a window making machine looks like. And you know, he'll look at it and he can very quickly identify that, oh look, the employer took off the guards or oh look, the safety company removed some warning labels. And so having that documented right away is is really invaluable in the case. And so whether it's for yourself or for another worker, getting that taken down so that nothing the employer does later can hurt the case is it really helps out a
0: lot. Okay, I've got another one and this is a toughie. So brace yourself. If a fellow employee, let's say this fellow employee who's at the scene was involved in the accident to some extent let's say they're perfectly of sound body and mind they're stone cold sober is that witness at any risk of monetary loss or consequences as a result of that or should they feel comfortable sharing their story or should they reach out to a lawyer themselves
2: Interesting question you raise. So if a coworker is the one who kind of contributes to the accident, they can certainly um, get in trouble with their employer, whether if it's, you know, I don't know what their policies are, it depends on what they did, but it could be anything from being written up to getting a deduction in a bonus up to termination. And so, yes, if somebody is involved in causing an accident, they should be uh, a little bit concerned for their job and their ability to keep that job. What I would ultimately tell that person is just tell the truth. Yeah, Lying only makes it worse. In most states, that employee that, you know, may contribute to an accident, They're not generally subject to personal liability. There's a legal concept called vicarious liability, which basically means an employer is responsible for the negligence of their employee. So, for example, if one worker slams a door on another worker's hand, that employer has to cover that injury and that potential either negligence or workers' compensation or whatever it may be. So, yes, you have to worry about getting in trouble with your own boss. Generally speaking, uh, at least in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, no, you don't have to necessarily worry about your your own personal um, liability unless you really did something out of bounds yeah. of your job. That actually kind of leads into another interesting point, which is, what if you're a worker and you get hurt because of your own mistake? Hmm. Um, and that, yeah. that's something that you see. I mean, there are plenty of employers that do everything they can to make sure their workers are safe. And sometimes, you know, workers are on the job and they, they might slip and fall for no one's fault. They just happen to tip over or, or slip on something, or maybe they smack themselves with a hammer i don't know but yeah most states require workers compensation rights and workers compensation does not consider fault so even if you are hurt because of your own fault in most states not all but in most states workers compensation still has to cover you meaning they have to pay for your uh your wages and they have to pay for your medical treatment until you're able to come back even if it's your own fault and so it's important to know that so just If you get hurt and it's your own fault, don't feel like you have to, oh, tough it out, don't go see treatment. Whose fault it is is generally not an issue in workers' compensation. It's a bigger issue when you're suing, like, a third-party company.
0: Gotcha.
1: That makes a lot of sense. So don't necessarily fret uh, over who made the mistake, what the source of the mistake was initially. Just get treated, call a lawyer, and they're very well, maybe— a case there. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I mean just tell the truth. That's that's really the important thing. Because yeah. if you get caught in a lie, whether it's your fault, someone else's fault, just getting in caught in a lie basically puts you in the worst position because no one's going to believe anything that you say. Yeah. True. Yeah.
1: For sure. For sure. Speaking of fault and the disconnect that can occur between employers and employees, what are some common signs that you've seen that either an employer or a health insurance company is screwing over an employee? Or are are there any red flags that might be present early on that might signal, hey, this could be a bad company to work for?
2: Absolutely. The first red flag you're going to see is is high turnover. Interesting. And you see that all across the board in every industry. I worked for a law firm where a partner kind of running the show was just a nightmare to work for. And about every year and a half, you would have a new set of associates working for them. The same thing applies to job sites everywhere. You get to a job and it seems like every single person there has been there for Mm -hmm. six months or or less. It might raise some red flags. Another thing you often see is you'll see frequent Mm -hmm. injuries because clearly those employers are not prioritizing training the workers. They're not prioritizing personal protective equipment. know, they're not maintaining equipment and tools and machines, all of these things that lead to injuries. And so the best way to put it is safety starts at the top. If the company is not prioritizing safety, then the workers are not going to prioritize safety and people are going to get hurt. People are going to leave. There's inappropriate supervision and leadership. And ultimately, it just brings everybody down.
1: To your point about you taking care of your health first, the fact of the matter is, if if you get hurt on the job, you're seriously injured. whether you are able to bring out a great settlement or not, you're still hurt. yeah you've still sacrificed your health and I feel like no one would say that your health is worth any amount of money. So I think that a big takeaway there is if a job site seems unsafe, that's not a risk worth taking Truly. you know money, not an equation.
2: Yeah it's, it's a good point you make. It's kind of interesting when I was in law school, I never thought about being involved in, in personal injury. even when I came out of law school, my first job was at the Philadelphia District Attorney's Office and I was literally a lawyer in Philadelphia and I, I recall someone suggested they were like Jordan, you should do uh, personal injury. I feel like you would you would enjoy that. And in my mind, I was like personal injury, huh? Like like slip and falls, you know, like car accidents. Oh, my back yeah. hurts. Oops, that hurt. That was kind of the thought I had. I had no idea what it actually meant, and I was like, I don't want to do that. Now I work uh, at a law firm where. You know, we represent mostly catastrophically injured people who have really serious injuries and who are no longer able to take care of their families or the families of people who died. And the reality is every time I speak to my clients, even when we get them seven, eight figure settlements, and I'm talking 10 to $20 million on a case, every single time without question, the answer is always there's no amount of money that makes that injury or that death worth it.
0: 100%. I have a stupid question, if I may. So- Jordan, in the movie Super 8, the movie starts, it pretty much opens on the days since an accident sign, and whatever the number was, it was like 300 or something, and they were dropping it to zero. Were those signs required by law? Like, if not, why would they not just take the sign down if it was like an advertisement (laughs) of the... Company safety.
2: <laughs> that is a. Uh, I haven't <laughs> seen that movie, but uh, that's a funny little thing that you'll see there. I have seen that at different employees' facilities. I don't know if that is a requirement. What I read from that, kind of reading between the lines, is that sounds like it's an employer who does care about safety.
0: Yeah, that's true.
2: Mm. Ultimately, it seems like they're prioritizing, you know, their employees being safe over worrying about potential litigation down the line. You love to see that because. You know, some some companies do have their priorities in line, and, and those are the people you want to work for.
1: Absolutely. So, for the companies or the entrepreneurs out there that really want to do right by their employees and really want to make sure they're taken care of, what steps can those employers take? The most important
2: thing is is investing in the people that are making you money. Yeah. Um, it's the workers, right? And it's it's kind of the inverse of what we talked about earlier, which is what are the bad employers? Invest in your workers. Give them the training to do the job right. Give them the tools and the equipment to do the job safely, effectively, efficiently. Give them the the PPE, hard hats, safety glasses, gloves, Things that um, you know keep people working and, and keep them not at doctor's offices and keep them not at home. Those are the things that good employers do to make sure that their workers are, one, happy, and, and two, safe. I found that those companies end up doing better because they don't have the high turnover, so they're not spending a lot of money repeatedly training the new workers. They're not paying out lawsuits and unemployment and, and workers' compensation and all of these things. So it works twofold because you have happy and safe workers and you also are not paying off the legal bills and things like that.
1: Having the foresight
0: to know that paying up front is better than paying late.
2: Absolutely. It's an investment. It's investment in your business and your people.
0: Absolutely. The next one's a doozy, Jordan, for undocumented citizens what changes here do they still have a case if they get hurt this is something
2: that is definitely state by state i think generally speaking though um, undocumented workers still do have a case there are obviously complicating factors in every state like what's the immigration enforcement going to do if they find out about you yeah in pennsylvania and new jersey the government is not looking to ship off undocumented workers so reporting An accident is not going to raise any red flags. I can't speak to states like Arizona and Texas where they have some stricter laws. And, you know, I I don't know what would happen there. And it it probably puts workers in a bad position. So, what I would suggest to a worker from uh, a state that might take a tougher stance on immigration is to definitely speak with a lawyer about that issue before you do anything. I can say in a state like Pennsylvania and New Jersey and some of the more liberal states that are not just shipping people off, it affects the case, but it does not prevent them from bringing a case. What I've seen in, in a lot of job sites around here for some reason, uh, a lot of undocumented workers end up being roofers. Hmm. I'm not sure what the correlation is, but ultimately roofing is a dangerous job, obviously, because you're yeah. working at elevation. Yeah. And when they don't have proper tie-offs and different restraints to keep them from falling, they get hurt. And so um, at my law firm, we represent a lot of Portuguese speakers, a lot of Spanish speakers. Huh. Um, and so the first thing is you know, find a lawyer that either speaks your language yep. or is willing to pay just the few 100 bucks it might cost to have a translator on the call because you need to be comfortable with the conversation that you're having with your lawyer about your rights. You know, if you speak broken English, you can't communicate both ways. So, you know, at my firm, if I if I have a Spanish speaking client, I will get a Spanish speaking lawyer to translate for us. And if he or she is not available, you know, I use different services that will yeah. just hop on a call with you, a translator, and they'll do the, all of the translating for you. It doesn't cost that much money. So any lawyer that's not willing to invest in that hundred bucks to have a translator on the call for an hour is not a lawyer that you want to work with. In terms of the effect on the case, what I typically see is if you're hurt, you're undocumented and you bring a case, I can't present a future lost wages claim for you. Like, I can't say that over the next 15 years, you would have made $35,000 a year being a cafeteria worker. Sure. So you sometimes forego that lost wage claim, which can inflate the value of cases sometimes. So you kind of lose that. But at the end of the day, we can still uh, make a claim for your medical bills We can make a claim for your pain and suffering. We can make a claim for your future medical bills, which is is really important because obviously your health is the most most important thing. So um, just because you're undocumented doesn't mean you should avoid speaking with a lawyer. Find someone who you trust. Get your advice in your state about what the ramifications might be for coming forward. I know, for example, OSHA does not inquire about immigration status. Hmm. So if you're hurt and you want to call OSHA, perhaps to file a complaint, Don't be intimidated from doing that because they are more concerned about holding employers responsible for job site safety than they are deporting the workers that kind of make America run. So, you know, don't be scared of OSHA. Communicate with them. You can make confidential complaints if you want to. They will keep it confidential. So, you know, those are some of the things that you can do.
0: That's awesome. Just to reiterate on something before we move on, if a non-English speaking worker gets hurt in New Jersey or Pennsylvania... They could call your firm to seek assistance.
2: Absolutely. And they just let us know right off the bat, they don't speak English. We will get someone on the phone that speaks their language and for what it's worth. I mean, we handle cases all across the country. My firm handled that building collapse in Florida, for example, oh, wow. the uh, condo. Mm. We handled the—a uh, few years ago, you might recall, there was that dive boat fire in California. Oh. We handled cases all across the country. If you broke your arm, I don't know that it would be worth you know, my firm getting involved out of state. But if you want to call my firm and you have an injury or an accident in another state, I can help you find a lawyer in that state that actually knows what they're doing. So, Awesome. Um, you know, I, I have cases right now in, in Colorado, in Florida, in North Carolina, I have cases all over the place. So it's, it's really just about getting a lawyer who knows what they're doing. And that lawyer can either direct you in, in the right way or help you out even out of state.
0: Good to know. Real fast, we're going to put it in the information section for the episode. But why don't we remind the listeners the name of your firm? As well,
2: the name of my firm is Salts Mangaluzzi and Bendeski. We're based out of Philadelphia. We have offices in New Jersey, and we also handle cases all across the country, depending on what happened.
0: Nice. Okay. Awesome. So next question. In addition to your services, you mentioned OSHA already. What other government agencies exist to provide resources for people who have been injured on the job?
2: I would say the other kind of interesting services are social security disability. This is kind of getting into areas that I don't necessarily practice in myself. Of course. If someone has kind of these issues, what I would typically tell them to do is consult with an SSDI, Social Security Disability lawyer who can, you know, direct them the right way. But the government does provide assistance two people who have been injured and are no longer uh, able to work. Another potential option is unemployment, depending on the circumstances. That's kind of the thousand foot view over top. The first steps I would tell someone to take a look at.
0: Nice. Gotcha. Gotcha. We're rounding her out here. So let's say just as an example, you get a call from a client and they have done everything perfectly prior to reaching out to you. What are some of the key steps that they've taken to protect their case and make things easy for you and make things run as smoothly as they can for them?
2: Absolutely. So the ideal client will have documented their injury. And they will have made a report. They've gone to a doctor. They are getting treatment. They're cooperating with that treatment. You know, I actually like clients who try to get back to work. It lowers the mm-hmm. value of their case. Certainly, if they can go back to work, it means a smaller attorney fee for me. But the best thing is representing right. the guy who or the woman who really got hurt, tries to go back. You know, Maybe they're successful. Maybe they go back in some you know lesser capacity. Maybe they go into a new field. Getting kind of those ducks in a row really set up for uh, a good and a
1: successful case. Good. So in some of those more successful cases, I'd love to hear about what you were able to obtain for these clients. Yeah, absolutely.
2: One of them that comes to mind, it's not really a workplace case, but it's a woman who she was leaving work. She was a, uh, a nurse. Um, she worked at like an assisted living facility and she was on her way home and she stops at a stop sign. The cross traffic did not have a stop sign, and she starts to pull off, and unbeknownst to her, a state trooper was speeding down that road and T-boned her car. Oh, my god And yeah, her car flipped a few times, she ended up fracturing a couple vertebrae in her neck, Mm. and it's actually what her husband did for her. So what her husband did was he took photos of her when she was in the hospital, and he immediately contacted a lawyer. The lawyer that he called was not me, but that lawyer called me and said, Jordan, I wanna bring you in on this. This is a really bad injury. We wanna get your firm involved. Okay. Because he did that so quickly, we were able to send basically preservation demands to the state police to get them to preserve that state police vehicle before they scrapped it. Hmm. Um, and that really made the difference in this case because generally speaking in a lot of states and then definitely in Pennsylvania, government entities, including police officers have all sorts of immunities. Okay. And in Pennsylvania, the state police, the liability against them is limited to $250,000. Sounds like a lot of money, but when you're an injured worker who's making, you know, $80,000 a year supporting a full family and you can't go back to work, all of a sudden that two isn't sounding so great. And because we were able to jump up and get that state police vehicle preserved right away... I hired an expert who is a a crash recon, reconstruction agent. And he went out and did a download from that trooper's vehicle. And we discovered that he was actually going 82 miles per hour in a 40. He claimed that he was responding to some sort of emergency. We were able to get the call records for what he was going out for. And it turns out he was responding to a non-emergency. And so ultimately, that was a way that we were able to get past that $250,000 cap to take care of this woman because she was the primary breadwinner for her family. She went from being this, you know, hard worker who took care of her family to being someone who had nerve damage going down both arms and could barely use a cell phone. It really uh, impacted her life. She of course could not be a nurse anymore um, and the family lost that income, had no income generally speaking for the, you know, two years of litigation. And so ultimately because we were able to jump on that case right away. We were able to hold that what I called adrenaline junkie cop with a king of the road complex. We were able to hold him responsible and, and get her a, a seven figure settlement that you know she has put to good use. Great success story there. It's so weird because backdrop of all these cases is money and everyone gets so uncomfortable about money whether it's the client or whether it's bringing a lawsuit to bring money for an injury it's just the elephant in the room of every case clients are always like i want you to know i'm not just doing this for the money i'm like you know i i get it and yeah you know when they actually come in and you hand them a check and they realize after the last two years of struggling to make ends meet that they're pretty much set for the rest of their life i mean there's no better feeling um and that's
0: probably the most rewarding part about my job i have no doubt Speaking of the money question, let's say someone listening was recently injured. Obviously, money is going to be a concern given the duration of some of these cases. Should they be worried about how they will pay for your services?
2: That's a really fantastic question. And this is not something just for me. This is generally speaking across the personal injury um, field. So, If you are hurt. If you get a hold of a personal injury firm or a workers' compensation firm, 99%, if not all, give free consultations. Mm -hmm. So they will talk to you about what happened, they'll go over what your potential rights are without any type of fee. Perhaps the best part about it, or the part that makes us most accessible to the everyday person, is that we do not charge hourly. So we only win, or we only get an attorney fee if we win the case for you, whether it's settlement or verdict. So when a case comes in, On the business side of things, from the law firm, it's an investment. We put out a lot of money uh, in terms of hiring the best experts in the country, getting you seen by uh, the best doctors who can issue reports and and describe some of the stuff you're dealing with. We pay for all of the depositions, all of the stuff throughout the course of litigation. And ultimately, uh, at the end of the day, if we're able to get the injured person a settlement or a, a verdict from a jury, that's when our attorney fee is paid out and never beforehand. It's a percentage that comes out at the end of the day. And if Got ultimately it. we are unsuccessful in the case, we would never ever charge our clients anything, even all of the cost of litigation over the years. Mm-hmm. These case costs can get up. I mean, I had one case where a, a gentleman was working on a bridge project that spanned the Delaware River, which separates New Jersey and Pennsylvania. And it was a product liability case. We, we fought with five defendants over about six years. We racked up $350,000 in those five years of litigation, just in litigation costs, meaning paying for experts, paying for depositions and medical records. Thankfully, we had a great result at the end of the day. But had we lost that case, that would have been a business expense for us. And it's a loss for us. So we do not charge our clients anything.
0: Piggybacking on that just a hair. Based on what we've discussed today, A, a person like Jordan Howell is accessible. B, you as an injured person need to look out for yourself and for your family. It's not being entitled. You deserve to be made whole and taken care of if you were working a job or working for an employer, adding value to their operation. And we're injured in that process. There should be no shame with reaching out to someone like Jordan. This should just be part of the process. There's no barrier to entry on the financial side. You need to take care of yourself if you are injured on the job. The odds are really stacked against you as the worker. It is everybody versus you. Yeah.
1: To Jordan's earlier point, having someone in your corner who's going to help guide you through the endless red tape, the difficult legal matters all while you're healing from a grievous injury. You just need that guidance. But I think that we have taken up enough of your time, Jordan. Again, I I really appreciate your insight here. I I learned a ton and and I know that our listeners will learn a ton as well. Is there anything else that you want to add before we close up?
2: No, I I appreciate you guys having me on. I I love talking about um, these type issues and, happy to contribute and I appreciate the message you guys are sending out there and to everyone else. Keep in mind that getting hurt while you're working for someone else is not a cost of doing business. Yeah. Uh, Rad mentioned,